Since his transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17, the teachings of Jesus have seemingly been all over the road. Chapter 18, Jesus talks about temptations to sin. Then he's asked a very difficult question about forgiveness. Immediately after that, the Pharisees asked him about the nature of marriage and divorce. Immediately after that, a rich young man who seems to have all of his ducks in a row asked Jesus, what must I do to have eternal life? These scenarios and the teachings that follow, they don't seem to have much in common other than that they're all incredibly difficult topics. Like imagine just for one second, you stood in front of hundreds of people and in rapid succession, you were asked to field questions about temptation, forgiveness, marriage, divorce, and exactly how you receive eternal life. You were asked to unpack some of the most divisive and difficult spiritual topics imaginable. Now, maybe some of you are completely prepared to do that. My guess is some of you aren't. But I would be willing to bet that none of us would explain all of those varied teachings like Jesus did. None of us would use a story about a vineyard, its master, and the laborers paid to work it. That's exactly what I think today's gospel text is. I think the story told in Matthew chapter 20 is an explanation in story form of essentially everything Christ has taught since Matthew chapter 17. So before we dive into today's text and see the answer given, let's look back at the questions. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells a story about an unforgiving servant. The servant owes the king a whole lot of money, more than he could ever pay, but the king forgives the debt anyway and sets him free. But the servant who was just forgiven goes out and holds his brother responsible for some some meager sum. When the king discovers this, he has his servant thrown in jail. And then Jesus ends with this statement in verse 35. So also my heavenly father will do to every single one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now Jesus isn't mixing words here. He's making abundantly clear the degree to which you forgive is the degree to which you are forgiven. He echoes this again in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. This forgiveness business, it is, it's not easy, and yet Jesus is tying it to something as critical as your salvation. If you were to be saved, you must forgive those who are mean to you. You must forgive those who lie to you. You must forgive those who hurt your feelings and break your heart. Not because I'm telling you to. Jesus says to forgive every single one of them if you wish to be forgiven. And forgiving in those examples is hard enough. But what about some really terrible things, the truly evil things that can happen to some? Does Jesus really expect you to forgive that person who physically abused you? Does Jesus really require you to forgive the person who stole your spouse? To forgive your spouse for leaving? Is Jesus really saying that you must forgive the monster who killed your child? Is he really saying we must forgive people like that and then ties that forgiveness to your salvation? Is he really saying that? Yes. Unequivocally, yes. Our Lord is perfectly clear, and there seems to be no exceptions. Forgiveness of literally every single person for every single thing they've ever done is absolutely mandatory if you wish for your sins to be forgiven as well. 
And if you can sit there and honestly say that doesn't sound difficult, if you don't think that some of those things sound impossible, then you either walk with the Lord hand in hand in a way that few do, or you weren't listening. Seemingly, everything about forgiveness is hard, and at the same time, it's an absolute requirement. And I have no teaching for you this morning that will in any way diminish the difficulty. What I can offer you is an explanation of what forgiveness is, what it's not, and why the Lord requires it. You see, when God forgives your sins, He's not just sweeping them under a rug and pretending like they're not there anymore. He's not just patting you on your head and telling you that the things that you've done weren't actually all that bad. No, the full horror of your sin and the depth of your depravity are all exposed in their totality to God. Not just the minor things, not just the accidents, but literally every single thing you've ever done or thought. He sees them. He looks at them all and with perfect clarity, He offers you mercy. He forgives them. And the the offer of mercy is not what you would expect to receive for the terrible things you've done, is it? But you see, the word forgiveness itself literally means to forego giving. God foregoes giving you what you deserve. God foregoes giving you your punishment. And instead, He offers you something that you have not earned. He offers you something you do not deserve. God offers you, in exchange for your sins, peace. In exchange for your sins, He offers you Himself. And if you receive him, then you receive peace. You receive his forgiveness. And it's here that I think the central question of Matthew 18, the central claim that Jesus made, comes into focus. The question is this, to whom does forgiveness belong? Does the forgiveness of sin belong to you? Or does it belong to God? Does the forgiveness of sin originate in you? Or does forgiveness come directly from our Lord? And of course, you know the answers to those questions. Of course, forgiveness doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. And this is what the ungrateful servant gets absolutely wrong. The forgiveness of sins does not belong to him. It does not belong to me. It does not belong to you. And since it does not belong to us, we cannot be the ones who dictate its use. The forgiveness I have received from God cannot be withheld from you by me. I partake in His forgiveness. I receive His mercy. But His mercy and forgiveness are not mine to use as I see fit. God freely gives His mercy. And if you receive it, He expects you to freely give it away as well. And let me be clear. Forgiving someone like an abuser doesn't mean that you must resubmit yourself to their abuse. That is not what I'm saying. Forgiveness does not mean that you cease to act without wisdom. The Lord does not require you to be somebody's punching bag. That's not what forgiveness is. If you have a relationship that is estranged and broken, the Lord tells you to do your part and to forgive the offender, not because they deserve it. But in order for that relationship to be healed in order for them to be trusted again. But the offender has a job to do as well. They must 
repent of the sins committed against you. They must repent of the sins committed against God. And if they don't repent, then the relationship remains estranged. But that relationship is estranged not because forgiveness has been withheld, but because they've refused to receive it. This is how the forgiveness of God works. Anyone can be forgiven of anything if they only repent and receive from God the, the forgiveness He's offering. And for as hard as this forgiveness stuff is for us to hear and to process, it was no doubt even harder for the disciples. They had never known a world that was not ruled by tyrants. The level of abuse they had witnessed, the level of injustice and violence they had seen is thankfully more than we will ever know. And Jesus was telling them that every last single bit of that trash world they were forced to live in was to be forgiven. And even though that may have shocked them, what really seems to have surprised them was what happened next. A rich young man walks up to Jesus and says, Good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? He wants to know how he can inhabit the kingdom of Jesus and dwell with Jesus. Not only is this guy rich, but he seems to be quite moral as well. He tells Jesus he's never murdered anybody. He's never committed adultery. He's never stolen anything. He's never borne false witness. He's always honored his father and mother, and he's always loved his neighbor as himself. Guys, that is a great resume. For the disciples, this rich young ruler was exactly the kind of guy they needed on their side. First off, there's not a lot of rich people in Israel, yet here is one willing to join them. His money, his connections, his power, they could prove indispensable. And how many people could list off the commandments that they've kept with clarity and honesty and say that they had kept them all? In the minds of the disciples, the rich young ruler was the epitome of one who would have the end kingdom of God. Yet after just a very brief conversation with Jesus, this rich young man walks away, sorrowful, unwilling to join the kingdom because of the cost he would incur. And as they watched this young man walk away, the disciples were astonished. They said, if that guy doesn't make the cut, if that guy isn't found in the kingdom, then Lord, who on earth is? The disciples were thinking about who could inhabit God's kingdom like this. Imagine we wanted to start a CTR basketball team, and we decided that we weren't going to play church league ball. No, sir. We had our eyes set on the Olympic gold medal. We are taking on the world. Now, guys, just look around the room. I love y'all. But you can't tell me you think we've got a shot. But then something amazing happens. Michael Jordan walks through the door. He walks straight over the Father Chris and says, sign me up for Day of Discovery. Wouldn't that seem like the hand of God was at work? If Jordan were on our team, guys, we might actually have a shot of winning gold. But after a short conversation with Father Chris, Michael Jordan walks out of the building unwilling to join the team because of what it would cost him. I'm willing to bet we would ask a question just like the disciples. 
Chris, if Jordan can't make the team, then who in the world can? I think that's the question that Jesus is answering in our gospel text. Here's what Jesus says his kingdom looks like. A master has a vineyard. In the morning, he hires people to work his vineyard for the day. They agree upon a price, a denarius to be paid. A few hours later, the master goes out and hires more people. He agrees to pay them what seems right to him. A few hours after that, he goes out and hires even more people, agreeing to pay them what seems right to him as well. And then, just as the day is coming to a close, he hires yet more people. And not long after that, the day of work concludes and he begins paying out what is owed to everyone. And he begins by paying the people who clocked in last. And the master pays them a denarius. He then pays the next group who clocked in in the afternoon a denarius. And coming all the way down to the people who clocked in early that morning who had borne the day's work, he paid them, you guessed it, denarius. And in the story, this doesn't sit very well with them. Verse 12 says this, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But the master replied and said, My friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to the last worker as I have given to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? In that one verse, I think Jesus explains three chapters of teaching. Why does forgiveness work the way it does, Lord? Why must forgiveness be offered to everyone? Because forgiveness belongs to the Lord, and He has chosen to show it to everyone. So must you. Why does marriage and divorce work the way they do, Lord? Why can't we just change the parameters along which they exist? Because marriage does not belong to me. Marriage does not belong to you. Marriage belongs to God. You may participate in it, but marriage belongs to him and he has set the parameters. Why does the rich young ruler who seems to be the epitome of everything found in the kingdom walk away disappointed? Because the kingdom of God isn't like the kingdoms of this world. Your entrance into God's kingdom is not predicated on your abilities. Your entrance into God's kingdom has nothing to do with how well you've kept the law It has nothing to do with how few sins you've committed or how righteous you may seem. Your entrance has nothing to do with your connections, your clout or your social graces or how articulate you are or how rich or poor you are. A kingdom based on meritocracy is how a kingdom of this world is built. But Jesus was building a kingdom based on forgiveness. He was building a kingdom founded on love and mercy. A kingdom where what you bring to the table has nothing to do with whether or not you make it in. The kingdom of God is predicated on you receiving the forgiveness that God offers. A kingdom citizen has earned nothing. We've received nothing we deserve. Instead, God has given us something we have not earned. He has given us something that we do not deserve. The master of this vineyard has offered us forgiveness. He has offered us mercy. Christ 
has offered us himself.